in the year 1431, one of the most ridiculously pompous ceremonies in world history took place. Henry VI, a child, had inherited the thrones of both England and France. And at the age of 10, Henry received his second crown in Paris. Upon his return to London, he was greeted by the most extravagant celebration. The fountains in the streets overflowed with wine. Tapestries were made equating Henry with Jesus. And the finale of the whole ordeal involved a performance in which a group of actors portrayed the court of heaven and the actor who portrayed God the Father pronounced his blessings upon Henry. The coming of the king was met with absurd jubilation, revelry, extravagance, and blasphemy. And for what? A 10-year-old who was king in name only. Really, politicians were ruling. He had won no victories. He would be such a lousy king that in short order he would lose not only France but England too. Here we see the coming of a lousy king. This morning I want to contrast this pathetic scene with some beautiful scenes that we find as we continue our study in the gospel according to Matthew. Because in today's passage, we see the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, who Matthew chapter 2 tells us was born a king, king of the Jews. Matthew 3 tells us that he is the son of God. He was acclaimed by the real God the Father, not just some actor. Jesus is the King of Kings, Jesus is the Messiah, and in today's passage, Jesus begins to act in this capacity. Today we see that the true King has come, and today we're going to see what the King's coming looked like in ancient Galilee 2,000 years ago, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. If you have a Bible, turn there. Today we're going to consider four points which speak to us about Jesus and show us how we should respond to Jesus and relate to Jesus. First, today we're going to see that the king's coming illumines the darkness. Second, we're going to see that the king's coming is good news. Third, we're going to see that the king's coming requires a response. And fourth, we're going to see that the king's coming manifests the reality and the power of the kingdom of God. All right, our first point is this. The king's coming illumines the darkness. Today's passage begins the second major section in the Gospel of Matthew. The first unit of this book ran from the beginning through chapter 4, verse 11. And in the introductory section of this book, we are introduced to Jesus. We see a number of incidents from his early life. We see his baptism by John the Baptist. We have seen his testing and his vindication in the wilderness. And everything we've seen so far in this book, either by paralleling events and statements from the Old Testament, or by recording the words and deeds of angels, of the Magi, of God the Father, of God the Spirit, or even of Satan, all point us to the fact that Jesus is the apex of history. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Lord. And now that we readers know who Jesus is, now that Jesus has been publicly attested in ancient Galilee by the Father, now at last Jesus begins his work. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. When we last saw Jesus, he had just been baptized. He had fasted for 40 days. He had withstood the temptations of Satan. But now there seems to be a gap of time. Verse 12 tells us that John the Baptist 
who the last time we saw him was leading a big, significant ministry, has now been arrested. We're going to learn more about why John was arrested in chapter 14. Basically, John spoke the truth of God's word to some powerful people, and John's truth-telling got him in legal trouble. So that's where we start today. John has been arrested. But what happened between the period of time in which Jesus was in the wilderness and John's arrest? Well, if you look at the Gospel of John chapter 1, what you'll discover is that during this period of time, it seems that Jesus returned to the area where John the Baptist had been ministering. And the Baptist pointed Jesus out to some of his disciples and said, that's the guy I was talking about. That's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. And these disciples found more disciples to follow Jesus. And Jesus took this party to a wedding in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. But then in John 2, we're told the Passover was at hand. And like all observant male Jews, Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus cleansed the temple of the wicked money changers who were exploiting people in the name of God. Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus and told him, you must be born again. Jesus apparently became friends with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary who lived just outside Jerusalem. And Jesus apparently stayed in the south in Jerusalem and Judea for a while. Now, why does Matthew not tell us any of this? First, I think we need to remember the famous statement made at the end of the Gospel of John. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books. You know, Jesus lived an amazing, eventful life. The Gospel writers necessarily had to omit certain events from their story. Not only that, they had to figure out how to include the material and how to present the material they chose to include. And of course, we confess that the decision that they made, what to include and how to present it, was not just their own literary judgment. This was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, the Spirit has not just given us one account of the life of Jesus. He's given us four so that we can see different aspects of Jesus' life and different interpretations and presentations of that life. We can see Jesus through the four Gospels in a multifaceted way. And so I think the first reason that Matthew doesn't tell us about Jesus' initial activities in the South is that under the guidance of the Spirit, he has chosen to omit this material. But there's a second reason, I think, that Matthew does not put this material up front, which relates to how Matthew has constructed his book. When you write a biography of someone, there's a few ways you can go about it. You could choose to tell the story chronologically, describing the events in someone's life in the order that they happened. But you might also choose to relate someone's life in other ways. If you were writing, say, about a president, it may not make much sense to arrange the biography entirely chronologically. Of course, you'd have to be chronological about some things. You'd have to start with his birth and end with his death. But while you wrote about his years in office, you might have a section on his foreign policy or a section on his economic policy. You might present the events in his life not chronologically, but topically. In the same way, the four Gospels present Jesus' life in different arrangements. Luke and John seem very interested in chronology. They want to present Jesus' life in the order that it happened. Mark uses a different approach. Mark organizes his narrative largely around geography. First, he presents Jesus' life in the north, in Galilee. And then he presents what happened in the south, in Jerusalem. If you didn't know better, when you read Mark, you just think he was describing one big trip in Jesus' life from Galilee to Jerusalem. 
You'd never know that in the other Gospels, some of these events are arranged in a different order. You'd never know that Jesus went to Jerusalem every year and not just once, which John tells us Jesus went to Jerusalem three times over the same period. But Mark has built his book in this way by design. By rearranging the material geographically, you wind up seeing Jesus' life as a journey, marching ever closer to his destiny in Jerusalem. Now, in our book, the Gospel of Matthew is arranged very similarly to Mark. On the most basic level, yes, there is some chronological arrangement. The book starts with Jesus' birth. It ends with his death and resurrection. But in between, Matthew has a very strong geographical arrangement. And so in the next 11 chapters or so, we're going to see events that basically happened in Galilee. But Matthew has added another level of arrangement in this book. He's not just arranging geographically, he's also arranging topically. And our passage today gives us an introduction to this topical presentation of Jesus' ministry. Today we're going to basically see three big ideas. Jesus preached, Jesus performed miracles, and Jesus called disciples. And then, coming up in chapters 5 through 7, we find Jesus preaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, we find a collection of all of Jesus' miracles he performed in Galilee, or almost all of them. And then in chapters 10 and 11, we find Jesus giving instructions to his disciples. The material has been grouped around these themes, which all leads up to chapter 12, in which Jesus is rejected by various groups. So I think this is the second reason why Matthew does not talk much about Jesus' initial trip into Jerusalem at this point, because he first wants to talk about Galilee in the north. He's going to talk about the south later. And so Matthew skips ahead of those days. And he picks, up his, at his story, he picks up his story at the time when Jesus left the south to go north, at the time when John the Baptist was arrested. And when that happened, it seems that Jesus took this as a signal. He returns to Galilee, to the area he was raised in, and he begins his work in the north. But while Jesus returns to Galilee, note that Matthew tells us he does not relocate to his hometown. He does not go back to Nazareth. Now we get more information about this in the Gospel of Luke, because there we see that Jesus does go right to Nazareth. He preaches in the synagogue, you might remember, and he's viciously rejected. The people take him up on a hillside and want to throw him off a cliff and kill him, and Jesus leaves town. Chronologically, that happens next in Jesus' life. But we don't find that here in Matthew. Why not? Because Matthew's not working chronologically here, he's working topically. Matthew will tell us about Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, but he holds off until chapter 12, which is a chapter all about Jesus being rejected. So Matthew wants to start his story at a different starting point than some of the other gospel writers. He doesn't show us Jesus turning over tables in Jerusalem right away like John does. He doesn't show us Jesus being rejected in Nazareth like Luke does. Matthew starts with what happened after Jesus left Nazareth and moved to the bustling community of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Now, Capernaum was a pretty sizable town in the ancient world. It was about a tenth the size of Sugarland, And it was economically vibrant because it was connected to the nearby lake, which had tons of fish. And it's here in Capernaum that Jesus is going to begin to get some momentum in his ministry. You can see on the map there, Capernaum is just at the north of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see where Nazareth is in relative position to it. 
Jesus in Capernaum is going to get some momentum to his ministry. And Matthew, in that fact, sees again a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this is where he chooses to start telling us about Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4.13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The quotations from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And these verses appear in the middle of an absolutely massive prophecy in Isaiah. A section that starts with the declaration, a virgin shall conceive, and that ends with the declaration, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And in between these two statements, we find this statement, that in the later time, Isaiah says, a light will shine in a dark place in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee as Isaiah knew it. In Isaiah's day, 700 years before Jesus' birth, Galilee was a very dark place. It was under God's judgment. The wicked Assyrian Empire was beginning to move into Galilee and conquer it. The Israelites who lived there would soon either be slaughtered or enslaved. Indeed, they lived in the region of the shadow of death. But there was hope, because in this same area, Isaiah said, one day God's light will shine. One day hope and joy and redemption will come to the lands then owned by the tribes of Zebulun. And Naphtali. Now, in Jesus' day, the ancient tribal boundaries were no longer meaningfully observed. But in antiquity, Nazareth was part of the territory of Zebulun, and Capernaum was part of the land of Naphtali. The region Jesus is in here is the same region Isaiah had once prophesied about, an area that still contained a number of Gentiles as it had in Isaiah's day, but the majority of people in Galilee in Jesus' day were Jews. And yet Matthew says Galilee is still a dark place a region in the shadow of death. It's a commentary on the spiritual condition of Galilee. Galilee is in darkness, not because God's judgment abides on it at this point, not even because there are a few Gentile pagans. It's dark principally because there is evil political leadership in Galilee. Herod the Great's son Antipas reigns over this area. And Antipas is the fellow who has imprisoned John the Baptist for speaking the truth. And in addition to Antipas, this book shows us that the religious leaders of first century Judaism were spiritually darkened. They have failed to love and worship God. They have failed to obey His word. They have failed to look for the Messiah. They have misled their followers. And so first century Galilee was indeed a dark place in a dark time because of evil political and religious leadership. It wasn't as bad as Jerusalem was, but it was still very spiritually dark. But here would burst forth the light of God through the ministry of Jesus. And friends, this is the first thing we need to know today. In Jesus, God shines his light into the darkness. We live in a dark time, in a dark world, don't we? What do you find on the news? Lots of darkness. Here's some guy who did some evil thing and he's going to jail. Here are a few hundred more infections and deaths. Here is some politician speaking lies. Here are some folks calling good evil and evil good. It can get terribly glum, can't it? 
This past week was especially glum for many evangelicals as the report came out about the horrific misconduct of Ravi Zacharias. Reading it, you couldn't help but feel just totally demoralized. Darkness isn't just out there vaguely somewhere, although it is. Sometimes darkness is in the church. And that shouldn't surprise us because darkness sometimes is in all of our hearts, isn't it? Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Darkness is out there. More than that, darkness is in here. And darkness can seem to be everywhere, and it can seem to be powerful. But friends, this passage tells us a glorious truth, that in times in which we are tempted to despair, in times of great darkness, there is yet hope. The same hope Isaiah's Galilee had under threat of political collapse and war. The same hope that first century Galilee had, despite evil leaders and religious corruption. The same hope we have today, which is in Jesus. Prophecy of Isaiah 9 doesn't just tell us where light will dawn. It tells us what the light will do. Isaiah 9.3 says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. They are glad as when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the rod of his oppressor you have broken. This prophecy tells us Jesus is light because he does two things. First, Jesus gives despairing people joy. Jesus famously said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You want to have peace and joy in the middle of darkness? You say, I can't find joy right now. Look to Jesus. Jesus illumines our lives because Jesus forgives our sins. Jesus takes away our guilt and shame. Jesus says, I'm with you to the end of the age. Life is hard, but we don't have to face it alone when Jesus is with us. Jesus gives us a certain hope. He has promised us everlasting life. He has sworn to give us the greatest of all inheritances, something to hold on to and press forward to. Without Jesus, this world would be endlessly dark, wouldn't it? But Jesus is our light. Second, Jesus is our light because he defeats our enemies. You say, well, who, who are my enemies? I don't want us to think about our enemies as primarily being people. Remember Ephesians 6? We don't struggle against flesh and blood. We struggle against the spiritual forces of darkness. Our problem isn't foreign invaders like it was in Isaiah's day. It's not evil politicians like it was in Jesus' day. It's sin. But Jesus defeats the darkness of sin. First, because he exposes and judges the darkness. Listen to John 3. Jesus says the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But Jesus shines his light into the darkness because he strips sin of its power and its evasion, its concealment. He lays the truth bare and he brings justice to it. And after we've seen what's happened in the last week, friends, we all need to consider our hearts and realize Jesus is not messing around. If we have sin we've got to deal with, we need to deal with it. Because Jesus, he exposes and he deals with sin. More than that, Jesus is light because he overpowers the darkness. John 1.5 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Boy, the darkness wants to snuff Jesus out. It never will. They can't shut off his light. And Jesus is light because he, he empowers his people to no longer belong to this present darkness, but 
that we may also become light that points to God. Colossians 1, using the same imagery of light and darkness, says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. John 3.21 says, Whoever does what is true comes into the light so that his works may be clearly seen to have been carried out in God. In fact, Jesus is going to say in the next chapter of this book, You are the light of the world. You say, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. He is. And then he turns around and says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and stick it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Friends, the darkness doesn't win. Jesus vanquishes the darkness, and that is a reason to rejoice and to press on in evil times. And he has given us a role in propagating his light of spreading hope and joy to this dark world by pointing people to him. And so we are to display the light of Jesus in our lives by living differently, by proclaiming the gospel, by doing good works, and by helping lost, despairing people find the only place where there's true joy and peace. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. And he's shown first in Capernaum, in Galilee. Our second point is that the king's coming is good news. As Jesus relocated to Capernaum, he no longer practiced construction work. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus' first recorded sermon in this book. Now you might think, well, that's a short sermon. Why can't we have more sermons like that? But of course it would be a mistake to think that Jesus' sermon consisted of just these nine words. This is a summary of Jesus' message. And we know that because of the way Mark puts Jesus' sermon during this time. Mark 1.15, he says, he has Jesus saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. There's a bit more content in Mark's summary. So why does Matthew just record, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because I think Matthew's making a point. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he uses that same exact language to describe Jesus' sermon. By giving us this same summary, Matthew makes us see the continuity of John's message with Jesus' message. This dark world tried to snuff out the message by putting John in jail. But Jesus now picks it up. The message cannot be silenced by the darkness of the world. And this is the same message Jesus will transmit to his followers to pass on in Matthew 10, 7, where he tells his disciples, proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This same message which the world still wants to silence nevertheless persists through the ages because of the plan and the power of God. Now we talked a lot about this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, two weeks ago in chapter 3. But I want to briefly reiterate the conclusions we drew there, and then we'll move on. The statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, consists of two ideas. First, there's a command, repent, and then there's an explanation. The explanation is that the kingdom has drawn near. In Greek, this is a perfect tense verb, which tells us that something has happened in the past with ongoing results. So something has brought the kingdom near, and it remains near. Well, what has brought it near? Well, the king has come. Jesus, the Messiah, has appeared. And because the king has come, his kingdom is, in some sense, nearby. 
Now, the kingdom is not here in its fullness. Right? When Jesus said these words, Rome still ruled Jerusalem, the world remained in rebellion as it remains today. The full coming of the reign of God on this earth is still yet future even to us right now. And yet with the king's appearing, we'll see in just a minute, the kingdom has clearly in some ways commenced. The reign of God has begun to break through the darkness, retaking people and territory. And so the kingdom has begun. And in view of that, people must repent. There is a call for people to have a change of mind, which leads to a change of will, which leads to a change of life. Now, I want to be clear about this. The Bible tells us the precondition for salvation is repentant faith. And I have said that repentant faith will produce life transformation. But I also want to remind you that we're not saved by our works, according to Ephesians 2.8. Life transformation and obedient good works are not a cause of our salvation. They are an effect. The demand of God is repentance and faith, which, if we truly respond to it, will produce life transformation. And that's the message Jesus here invites and demands. Now, I told you a few weeks ago that some people today deny that what Jesus is preaching here in Matthew 4 is the same gospel message that the church is today to proclaim. These folks usually claim that Jesus is only speaking to Israel about the law in this sermon and that he's not speaking the gospel, that the gospel the church proclaims today is some kind of a later secondary message. Perhaps you've heard that claim. I would tell you it's not true. We've just seen Jesus' message summarized in Matthew 4.17. Drop down now to Matthew 4.23. And we read, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is here called the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And you say, well, yeah, but maybe the fact that it's the gospel of the kingdom means it's a different gospel. No, 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 no. This word gospel is found four times in Matthew's book. The most important reference to understanding its applicability to us today is found in Matthew 24, 14. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom, same phrase, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The same phrase, summarizing Jesus' preaching in chapter 4, the gospel of the kingdom, is used in chapter 24 to describe the message that Jesus' followers must proclaim to the whole world before the end of history. In other words, this gospel of the kingdom is the gospel proclaimed by the church. Jesus preached the gospel. Now you could say, well, is Jesus talking about his death and resurrection at this stage? I don't think so. He doesn't get around to talking about that until chapter 16 of this book. Right? When we think of the gospel, we think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared. Yes, that's certainly the gospel. Paul tells us it is. Of course it is. Did Jesus say all of that in chapter 4? No. But what he's offering is still a legitimate offer of the gospel. He may not explain the basis for how humanity is reconciled to God. He may not explain that the kingdom is being bought with his own blood. He may not yet be speaking of his death and resurrection. But the nature of his offer is still the offer held out by the church today. Turn in faith to Christ. Be reconciled to God. 
because the kingdom has drawn near. God's reign will collide with this world. Judgment is coming, but there is a path to safety for the repentant. If that's not an offer of the good news of the gospel, I don't know what is. Now that's what Jesus is preaching here. And so friends, the king's coming is good news. Yes, we live in a dark world. There is a path of deliverance from the darkness of this world and from the darkness of sin and from the darkness of God's wrath. The light has come and in him is salvation and joy forevermore. But we come now to our third point in which we see that the king's coming requires a response. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's preaching his message and now he's going to gain his first followers. Look at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Josephus records that at any one time, there were 230 boats from nine different cities on this lake, collecting fish by using nets. And here we now meet some fishermen, Peter and his brother Andrew. And one day, as they are offshore casting nets, out of nowhere, it seems Jesus appears on the shore and he calls to them to walk away from their lives, their families, their business, and to follow him. And they do. Now, that may seem very strange to us. Why would these men respond to Jesus' drastic invitation with such immediacy and not even apparently knowing who he is if we're just reading Matthew? I've heard people say, well, maybe Peter and Andrew were able to spiritually perceive something special in Jesus, Jesus at this moment. Maybe. But I think the answer is far simpler. John chapter 1 tells us that Andrew had been among the followers of John the Baptist. And that over the course of two consecutive days, John the Baptist had pointed Jesus out to his followers, including Andrew, saying, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we're told Andrew got up and followed Jesus, and he got Peter to do the same. And for a time, they followed Jesus. They went with him to Cana, to the wedding. But then Jesus went south to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he stayed there for a while. And apparently, Peter and Andrew didn't go, or they went and they left early. And they went back to their old lives, which makes sense, because John got arrested, and John had been their, their other rabbi. So they went back to Galilee. They started fishing again. But now Jesus is back in Galilee. What's more, Luke chapter 5 tells us of an incident that happens shortly before the incident we read here. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked to be put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So Jesus calling Peter and Andrew is not really out of the blue. They know who Jesus is from the testimony of John the Baptist, from their own time previously hanging out with Jesus, from hearing his teaching on the boat, from probably hearing his teaching in the synagogue the previous Sabbath, and from experiencing this miracle as well as the miracle at Cana. And with all of that background, Jesus summons them to follow him. And knowing all of that, is it any wonder they respond at once? Similarly, we read in Matthew 4.21, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee 
and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here we see John and his brother James. They're with their father, mending their fishing net. Now at first we may think they are a separate, disconnected fishing company. But Luke chapter 5 verse 10 tells us, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners with Simon, that is Peter. So perhaps this is why they had to mend their nets. Because their nets were some of the nets that got broken when Jesus said, let down your nets, and they caught a bunch of fish. And as with Peter and Andrew, Jesus now approaches these brothers and he summons them. And immediately they respond, leaving their father and their business behind them. Now again, this may seem strange, but John chapter 1 tells us that not only was Andrew with John the Baptist when he said Jesus was the Lamb of God, another unnamed disciple was there too, the disciple whose name is never given in the Gospel of John, who has through the ages consistently been identified as John the Gospel writer. And so not only did Andrew follow Jesus to Cana, but John probably did too. And after Jesus went to Jerusalem, John probably went back to Galilee. And he and his father wound up partnering with his brother and his old ministry buddies, Peter and Andrew, and they formed a fishing company. But now here comes Jesus, and Jesus says to John, you come with me again, this time with his brother. See, this isn't out of the blue either. The people Jesus approaches and calls here have experience with him. They know who Jesus is. They've walked with him previously. They've heard him teach, and they've seen him perform miracles. They say, well, why does Matthew give us none of this background? Well, we can't know for sure. But I think the way Matthew describes this event seems to show us that his focus is not on why these men responded to Jesus, but how they responded to Jesus. And that's what I want us to pay attention to here as well. Jesus calls, how do they answer him? How should we answer him? Well, first, the proper response to the call of Jesus is an immediate response. Both times Jesus summons these fishermen, we're told they responded immediately. There was no delay. There was no time to sit around and equivocate. The Lord called and they answered. And I bring this up because there are people in every church in this country who week after week come to church and they hear the gospel proclaimed and yet they are content to remain non-committal. They come to church to get near to Jesus, but they don't want to take the plunge. They don't want to commit themselves. But friends, know this. There is an urgency to the summons of the Lord. The author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He tells us later in his book that Esau forsook the blessing of the Lord when it was available to him. Hebrews 12, and afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Friend, do not assume that the gospel is something you can harden your heart to today keeping your options open and hope you'll return to it later. There is no guarantee that later will happen for you. If you hear God's word, if you experience the drawing of the Spirit, if you see Jesus as God who became a man who died for you and rose again and who is calling on you to follow him, respond as these men in our passage did immediately. Today is the day of salvation. For tomorrow and a chance to respond tomorrow may never come. Second, the proper response to the call of Jesus is an obedient response. Jesus said to these men, follow me, and they did. Jesus set the terms, and they responded accordingly. Now, I bring this up because in recent years, there have been attempts by some people to separate 
the biblical concepts of discipleship from conversion. Many people today try to argue that you can be saved by Jesus without actually following Jesus. That you can take Jesus as your fire insurance broker, but not as your Lord. But we don't find that notion of conversion in the Gospels. The call of Jesus here and throughout all of the Gospels is the call to follow Him. And far from the path of so-called easy grace theology or free grace theology, following Jesus is not an easy path. Twice in this book, Jesus will tell us, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus calls on us to repent and believe. And as we do, we will be transformed, not into health, wealth, and prosperity, but we are transformed on the road of suffering and refining the path of the cross, of dying to self, of being sanctified by His Spirit to deny ourselves and increasingly obey His commands and His example. Friend, carrying your cross is not the road of ease, but it is the only road there is if we are to be Jesus' people. And so the right response to Jesus obeys His summons. The early disciples responded to the command, follow me, and we are to respond to the command to repent and believe the gospel. The path of repentant faith is inevitably the path of discipleship. Third, the proper response to the call of Jesus is a response that puts Jesus above all else. Here we see Peter and Andrew put Jesus above their business. John and James put Jesus above their father. Jesus demands first place in their lives. Later in this book, Jesus will say plainly in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands our highest and first allegiance. Even if our obedience to him means we're going to lose family relationships or even close friendships. Our loyalty to Jesus must outweigh any other consideration and loyalty. Chapter 8, a guy will come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. But first I've got to bury my father. He must have put his family above Jesus. Jesus won't allow it. In the same chapter, a man comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus warns him, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This man is tempted to put his comfort above following Jesus. Chapter 19, we'll meet a man who puts his money before Jesus. But Jesus says the right response to his call exalts him above all other claims and relationships in our lives. Such that what he says, we do no matter the personal cost. Fourth, the proper response to the call of Jesus recognizes that Jesus calls us to self-replicating discipleship. Jesus doesn't call these four men to just invest truth and knowledge in them, and then they sit around in an insular community for the rest of their lives. Jesus says, you're to become fishermen of men. They are to reel in others. Discipleship is not about us existing in isolation from society, growing ourselves and congratulating ourselves on how much knowledge we have. True discipleship recognizes that what Jesus gives us, we must share with others. Just as Jesus is the light of the world, he makes us into the light of the world so that as he shines into our lives, we shine in to the lives of other people. And so here Jesus calls the first disciples and they respond immediately and obediently. They drop everything else in their lives because they see Jesus must be their first priority. And they take up the call not only to follow Jesus, but to point others to Jesus. All right, we come now to our last point, which is this. 
The king's coming manifests the reality and power of the kingdom of God. Matthew 4.23, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We've seen Jesus preaching. We've seen Jesus gathering disciples. But his ministry in Galilee has one more big aspect to it. Jesus performs mighty works of healing. We're told here that Jesus healed every disease and every affliction. No malady is beyond him. He does not only resolve various diseases and pains, we're told here, but look at the specific examples listed. Paralysis. That's something beyond what modern medicine can heal today. I remember when Christopher Reeve was paralyzed. He had a lot of money, he got the best treatments, and they helped him a little bit, but they could not reverse his paralysis. And yes, I'm sure medicine has improved in the last 20 years, but paralysis is the extreme of physical limitation. But Jesus healed it. More than that, we're told Jesus healed those having seizures. In Greek, this is the verb uh, seleniatsomai, seleniatsomai, okay. And the word literally means to be moonstruck. This is a word that goes beyond having seizures. This is a word that relates the way that ancient people thought about mental illness, that it was related to the moon. See, mental illness was recognized as a real phenomenon in the ancient world, even if they couldn't explain it very well, much as in our world today, sometimes we wonder if uh, mental uh, health professionals can fully understand and explain mental illness. But the Gospels tell us that just as with physical maladies, Jesus has power over mental maladies. More than that, though, we're told that Jesus also healed those who were oppressed by demons. Demons are real, and they can torment people. We're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. But we need to know, just as with the extreme forms of physical ailment and mental ailment, Jesus is also able to cure the most extreme forms of spiritual ailment. What we see here is Jesus has absolute sovereignty and authority over every aspect of our vitality. Jesus is the great physician for the body, the mind, and the soul, and nothing is beyond his power. And so Jesus heals. But why does Jesus heal? Have you ever thought about that? Immediately, we may think of Jesus' compassion, and that's absolutely true. Jesus has compassion for those who suffer. He helps the afflicted. And that's a great reason why Jesus healed people. But I think there are three other important reasons that Jesus healed people in the Gospels. First, Jesus healed people because he's the Messiah. We've seen some of Jesus preaching this morning, proclaiming the gospel and calling on people to repent. But I mentioned earlier that in Luke's gospel, Jesus went to Nazareth and he preached a controversial sermon there. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus preaches a different sort of sermon. He got up and read from Isaiah 61, which we started our service by reading today. And then Jesus declared, this section of the Bible is fulfilled in your hearing, and he sat down. And what does Isaiah 61 say? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus' first coming was about, liberating captives, not just from slavery to sin, although that was chief in his mission, but he showed that he had the power to deliver people from sin by showing he had the power to also liberate them from physical and mental and spiritual infirmities. Jesus' miracles are his messianic credentials. 
Second, Jesus healed people because through his work, the kingdom of God has begun to burst forth into our world. Isaiah also spoke of the time when God's reign would govern this world. Isaiah 35, 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, it will be a time of restoration. When the curse ends, when death and affliction end, a time of renewal. But 2,000 years ago, when the king came the first time, his presence displayed this glorious power of the kingdom. Do we not see in the Gospels, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the mute speak, just like Isaiah said would happen. The king's coming shows the power of the kingdom, which is to come. You might remember in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, when he's in prison, sends some people to Jesus. And they say, are you the one? Did John get this right? What does Jesus say to them? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. Jesus points back to these same prophecies. And he says, I'm fulfilling the works that were said to be the works of the kingdom and the Messiah. Jesus' mighty works show that he is the king. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think this leads to the third reason that Jesus performed these wonders. Because the first century was a time in which there were many people who claimed to be the Messiah. A few weeks ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 9, and we saw there was a timeline given for when the Messiah would come. And people were looking for the Messiah a lot in the first century. But what distinguishes Jesus from the bandits and the madmen who falsely claimed to be the Messiah was that Jesus showed he was the real deal by the performance of these works. And we're going to see in coming chapters, Jesus' enemies concede Jesus' miracles were real. Couldn't say that about the fakers. And so in Capernaum, Jesus these, performs these works. And people start hearing about him. And they start flocking to him. People from Galilee, people from the south in Judea, people from the Hellenistic cities on the other side of the Jordan called the Decapolis, people throughout the next province over, the province of Syria. And as we end this chapter, we see that in Jesus, indeed, the king has come. And at first, he receives a wonderful reception. People come to him seeing he's different. They hear him preach and they begin to follow him. Now what I want to say about my last point is simply this. We live in a dark world and sometimes dark things happen in our lives, but there is light and hope in Jesus who has power over every event in history and power over every ailment and challenge that we encounter. And he is clearly able to help us. He who healed the paralyzed and the mentally ill and the demonically oppressed back then is still able to address our every problem. He who had compassion on the hurting then has compassion still on us today. And so in the hard times of life, we must follow the guidance of Peter. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we encounter the hardships of this life, take them to the Lord in prayer. Now, you may say, well, Jesus seemed to just heal everyone back then, and he doesn't seem to heal everyone today. Are these stories real? Can I trust Jesus? Maybe he won't help me. But I tell you this. It's true. There are no guarantees today that when we go to the Lord in prayer that he will answer things to turn out exactly the way we want. That's not guaranteed at all. But friends, before we talk about why that may be, I must ask you, have we not seen the gracious provision of God over and over in this church in the last five years? Have we not seen God intervene again and again in serious matters that we have labored in prayer over? Friends, Jesus still possesses the power and the compassion to help us. We can take our problems to him in prayer. 
And we can and must pray in faith, expecting him to answer, because he so often does. But yes, sometimes Jesus does choose to answer our prayers, not in the way that we want. And that's tough to accept. That's why we're called to faith. Because Jesus has purposes we can't always understand. That's what Job learned, right? He said to God, why? God says, well, Job, where were you when I hung the, the, the sun in the sky? Right? God says to Job, you're not operating on the same level I am. You can't see all of my plans and purposes. And those plans and purposes inform God's decision to sometimes not grant our prayers the way we want. And in that, we're not alone. No less a figure than the Apostle Paul learned in his physical suffering that sometimes God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And even in that place, we're not alone. When we don't get the answer that we want, we have the help of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We can know for certain that God will somehow redeem our terrible situations for His people's good. And we have this further promise that in the end, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day what Jesus briefly showed in His earthly ministry will be our condition forever, believing friends. And the awfulness of the darkness of our current world will be no more. And so, yes, we must take our problems to the Lord in prayer because the king's coming demonstrates the reality of the kingdom of God and the power of that kingdom, a power which still exists today and which will soon transform our world forever. So today, we've seen the coming of the king, a coming which is quite different than that ridiculous coming of the 10-year-old we talked about at the beginning of our sermon. This is no king dressed up with false pomp and circumstance. No, this is the king of kings. And in his first coming, he has illumined the darkness of this fallen world. He has brought us good news. He has called us to respond. And he has shown us the reality and power of his kingdom. And over coming weeks, we will see all of these themes developed more fully in Matthew's gospel. But this morning, let us honor and love Jesus. If you've never come to Jesus, don't delay. Repent and believe the gospel. If you have come to Jesus, remember he is our hope in this dark world. Hope in him. Cast your cares on him. And yes, indeed, let us also repent and live by faith so that we will be lights in this dark world, reflecting the brilliance of our Savior and telling them the glorious truth that the King has come.